This is our last sermon on, in this series. We've been doing a series on the very beginning chapters of Genesis. Uh, there's, a, there's what we call a narrative block, right? The first big story of the Bible, and it ends here. From the creation, through the Garden of Eden, through all the promises that God made to, to Adam and Eve, to the, to the, the tragedy of the fall, uh, to the promise that God made to restore, but then the fall into sin and the flood and everything. It all kind of comes to a, a, a close right here because what we see happening right here, this is where we're at in history. This is kind of it. Everything from this point forward is kind of a repeat of the same story over and over and over again. This is where we're at until Jesus comes back. And so let's pay our attention to it to see what God's gonna teach us about where we're at about how we might respond and live in it to his glory and not ours. So if you would please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is from Genesis chapter 11, the final act of the world that then was. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and let's burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and, one, and the people and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, what, what, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, there, there's something about high places. I don't know what it is, for, for most of us, unless you're like terrified of heights, my daughter's terrified of heights. We went to this sky bridge walk the other day and she made it all the way through. I was super proud of her, but it was, it was rough. But if you're not afraid of heights, there's something about being up high that gives you this like ethereal sense of, of soaring above the terrestrial confinement of our existence. You feel it? You know what I'm talking about? I, when I, my sister out of college married... Married a guy from New York City, moved back there, and I got to go in September every year to visit them, and they had a, they, he was kind of a rich guy, and they had an apartment in Manhattan, and I would stay in the apartment, uh, and the very first thing I did was I would go to the Twin Towers, to the observation deck on the top of the Twin Towers, and I would just, just stay up there for hours, because there was this feeling of like elation, this feeling of ascendancy, Right? Same thing, why do, we, why, do we, why do people spend all day 
22 miles up to go to Mount Whitney and stand up there for 15 minutes before they get hit by lightning and run back down. Same thing, you're standing on top of Mount Whitney and you see the valley far below. It gives you this sense of elation, this sense of there's almost like a spiritual vibe to it, feeling like you have somehow escaped the earth. As long as you look down. <laughs> as long as you keep looking down at all those poor people down there. If you look up, uh, it, <laughs> it's a different story. If you look up, you can see you're not really touching heaven, you know? And maybe that's kind of how you read this story. That's kind of how I read the story, right? You read the story, here's some people, and they're going to build a tower, and they're going to climb the tower and climb into heaven, right? And you're like, oh, how sweet. <laughs> Those poor, ignorant souls. How cute it must be, and how, how ignorant you must be to think that you can build a tower and climb up into heaven. I'm so glad that we live in an enlightened age, and I'm too smart to ever ever do anything like that. Amen? <laughs> Maybe you thought that. Maybe you're feeling that way. Uh, you know, but are they? <laughs> are they so ignorant? Are they so different than us? That's kind of the, the point of the story, right? That's, that's the uncomfortable uh, and inconvenient thing about reading the Bible is that it never really talks about them as much as you want it to. At some point, it always talks about us. And that's the story today. Uh, it's going to talk about us. And really, here's what the passage is saying, boiling it down. What it's saying is that sin is so hardwired into the human condition that God has to beat it out of us. Can I get an amen? Sin is so hardwired into the human condition that God literally has to beat it out of us. Not because he hates us, because he loves us. So let's look Let's go through this and see what is actually going on here and let's talk about it. First, let's talk about how building towers is hardwired into the human condition. This first point. What does hardwired mean? Hardwired is a phrase that comes from computers, right? It really means there's two definitions. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says, hardwired either means to make a permanent feature in a computer by means of a permanently connected circuits so that it cannot be altered. Uh, and then that becomes a metaphor, right, for, 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 for to make uh, a pattern of behavior or belief that becomes so standard and so instinctive that it's just our go-to default. It's hardwired into how we act and how we behave. And that's what tower building is. What are these people doing? Well, there's a couple things happening here. The first thing is this. The first thing is happening is they are trying to bridge the gap between heaven and earth on their own. Uh, where, what's, what's the context, right? If you remember the very beginning of this series, the Garden of Eden was presented as, we, printed, we showed all the different parts of the Bible that show the Garden of Eden was a mountain. The Garden of Eden was on the top of a mountain, and part of the beauty of the garden was that it was connected. There was a connection between heaven and earth, and God met with and lived with his people in that mountain garden sanctuary house of God. And then what happened, right? Mankind sinned, and they got kicked out of the garden, and a flaming cherubim, God put an angel 
in between. He, God put this angel in between mankind and the garden. What he's really saying is he's blocking the ways, making it impossible for mankind to come back into the garden and to be in, really to, to live in this corruption and sin of their flesh forever. But God, he puts this hard wall in between us and ascending heaven on our own because he has a better plan. He's got a plan where he's going to reconnect us with heaven, uh, but it's not something that we are going to do on our own. For now, we're separate, right? This is like historical stuff, too. In the ancient Near East, the cultures, they built what they called ziggurats, or these like steeped temple pyramids that were reaching into heaven. And if you, if you look at the writings, they, they used to call these things names like the house of the mountain, where they get that from the mountain of Eden. They would call it the house of the link between heaven and earth. What are they saying? They're trying to reconnect. They're trying to reconnect themselves with God on their own. They're trying to do what only God can do and be like God without God. And remember, they got a promise. They had a promise from the very beginning of Genesis. It says, I'm going to fix this. God's saying, be patient. Someone will come down, and he will fix this, and will reconnect us. And what are they saying? Nah. They're saying, nah, I don't like that plan, God. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait for somebody to come down. We'll, we'll come up to you. And in doing that, we'll show you like how great we are and we'll show the world how great we are. That's what they're doing. They're trying on their own power to ascend into heaven. Right? Now, it may look foolish to see them doing that by building a tower, but that, what's the point? What's God trying to teach us is that at the deepest level, this is the heart of every man-made religious impulse is to ascend to get up to God. And if you look at every other religion in the world, if you look at every secular philosophy, it's all about the ascent, that we as mankind are going to somehow, we're going to do this, follow these steps, follow these laws, do these rituals, uh, we're going to uh, discipline our minds, we're going to do something on our own, by ourselves, and that is going to cause us to ascend into heaven. It's kind of like the, the essence of what a lot of people, when people say, I'm spiritual but not religious, what are they saying? They're saying, I'm a light-filled being and I'm going to create my own path to the heavens. I'm going to find my own way to God in, in the lightness and of, of my eternal sense. I'm a spiritual being having a human experience and I can find my way back to God on my own. And yet the Bible as Norman read for us earlier, puts a darker spin on that. Sounds super noble, sounds so great and airy and light, but it's really an expression of the deep rebellion of mankind against God. It's man saying, I will ascend the mountain. I don't need you. I can do it on my own. I will be not like a creature. I will be just like the Most High. Watch me. Trying to be like God without God is the heart of every man-made religious impulse. And these people are not playing. They're going to build a tower. They believe in it so hard. Uh, but that's not all they're doing. 
right? There's another thing that they're doing here. They're not just trying to bridge the gap. They're not just trying to build a tower that is in the top of the heavens. The second thing they're trying to do is what? Let us make a name for ourselves. Now remember, last time we read, what's happened? God has given at least the family of Shem. Shem means name. It means God has placed his name on the family of Shem. And listen, this isn't just... It's easy to, maybe you think that this is just the bad guys, right? This is just the descendants of Ham that are doing this. No, this is everybody. Everybody. Shem, Ham, Japheth, the whole earth has refused to follow through on God's plan and are coming together to do this. And what they're saying is we don't want God's name on us. We want to make our own name. We want to do our own thing. I don't believe that what God has planned and orchestrated and what God has created me to be is the best thing. I want to figure it out myself. I want to listen to my inner heart and figure out a plan that's going to make me happy and fulfilled in the earth. And why are they doing it? Lest they be dispersed. What's God's plan? To disperse them through the world, to follow through with his plan. So what are they doing? What are they doing? They don't want God's plan. They want their plan. Why? Because they believe that their plan is better. Sound familiar? (laughs) You know, when we read this passage, depending on where you go to church, right, if you are like part of the theological complex, you look at this and you say, this is works righteousness. These are people who are refusing to accept Jesus and it's just about them wanting to uh, earn their salvation through works. Or if we look at it from like, the, the, to like a view of the secular world, you could say this is talking about the last 400 years of our culture and the whole enlightenment project where we decided to find enlightenment on our own outside of God. Those things are part of this, but it's so much deeper and so much bigger than that. What this is, is this. It's the human impulse to make our own way to heaven and to make our own way on earth and it is, it is the hardwired human belief that we can fix what's wrong with the world and we can fix what's wrong with us if we just try hard enough. Right? America. Can't tell Americans they can't fix something. Come on. I mean, that's one, that's just one manifestation of it, but that's the underlying issue. It's the hardwired human belief that we are capable of fixing what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with ourselves if we just try hard enough. And that might be as good a definition of sin as any. Don't need you, God. Don't need anybody. Maybe God can help a little bit here and there. Maybe when things get a little bit rough, we can call in like the special teams. But for the most part, I got this. I know the plan. I know what I need. I know it's going to make me happy. I don't need to listen to what God has to say or what God's calling me to do because that stuff sounds scary. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And that, that inclination is so hard. Why? Listen, listen. You know this. This, this inclination is so hardwired 
into our system that God has to literally beat it out of us. He literally has to beat it out of us. Not because he's mean, because, because he loves us. Listen, God has to beat it out of us. Let's look at this in two, those two big things, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to bridge the gap between heaven and earth on, by themselves. They're trying to make their own name. They're trying to like come up with their own plan for life and do it. Let's look at those individually. Let's first look at the impulse to make our own way to heaven. There is, like I said in the intro, maybe you looked at these poor ignorant fools um, with a self-satisfied smirk on your face. <laughs> there is some comedy in this. There is some comedy in it. God is like making jokes in this passage, right? Where do we see it? Uh, you know, they build the tower, and then it said, they build the tower to reach up into the heavens, right? And there they are on the top, and what does God have to do to even see what they're doing? And so the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. What's that mean? It's, what it's trying to say is God's making a joke. He's saying the great tower builders have come up a bit short. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> right? There's this video that's going around right now. There's a couple of them, but there's this new one that shows to scale. It goes from like a man to an elephant to the Eiffel Tower to the Burj Khalifa to uh, Mount Everest, right, to the moon, to the earth, to the sun, to the biggest star, to the galaxies, to supercontinents of galaxies. In fact, to show this, you know, to show to scale how much bigger all these things are than us or even the tallest mountain in the world or even the earth itself. And the, the purpose of the video is to give us um, this disorienting sense of smallness. When you see how big the biggest sun is compared to the earth, and then, you know, there's hundreds of billions of those, and those are just small parts of massive three-dimensional structures of light that God has created out in the, in the universe to show us that the creator is greater than the creation and that all that beauty is only a small, small glimpse of the beauty of the creator, which then, of course, we take and twist into nonsense, miss the point, however... Uh, this video like shows you how small we are, how big that stuff is to give us this disorientating sense of smallness. And that's the point. That's the point. God comes down. Even in the ancient world, they believed in like three levels of heaven. There was the, the heaven of the skies where the birds were. There was the heaven of the planets and the stars and the spheres. And then even past that, there was the third heaven, the dwelling place of God, consisting completely of fire, empyrean, where God lived and the council and the, the angels. And, and, and so this is a picture of God coming, in their minds, coming through Empyrean, coming through the realm of the stars and the sun and coming through and descending into and through the atmosphere where the birds from the clouds are and coming all the way down and being like, what are those guys doing? <laughs> oh, they're building a tower to heaven. <laughs> Isn't that cute? <laughs> What's it trying to point out? The distance between us and God and the trajectory. The distance and the trajectory. First, the distance. Listen, no matter how high you build that tower, no matter how moral you get, no matter how 
perfect. You make that tower you are building on earth. It's going to come up short. It's going to come up ridiculously short. Uh, see, we're not talking about spatial differences, right? This is a picture. God's giving us a picture. He's not talking about spatial difference. He's talking about moral distance. What he's saying is, what he's saying is this. On moral terms, we like, like comparing ourselves with one another, right? Which works really good if your comparison's Charlie Manson. Not so good if it's Mother Teresa. But we like compare ourselves to others to like check out how we're doing, right? So what this is saying is like, Death Valley, bottom of Death Valley is Jeffrey Dahmer. Maybe Mount Everest is, is Gandhi. And God is Pluto. Or God is the Andromeda galaxy. The, when you see everything in that scale getting a little bit bigger and bigger, I mean, that's really uncomfortable for us to think on a moral scale that Gandhi and Jeffrey Dahmer are about yay far apart. And God is Pluto. But that's the truth. That's the truth. Uh, you know, it's like if we had a jumping contest to China. We all got down to the beach. Me, maybe Pastor Brian, Gandhi. We all go down to the beach and, the, and we're gonna have a jumping contest to China. And I jump out and I like, I just get, you know, fall into the first kind of breakers, right? So I'm not having a good day. Brian, Pastor Brian, because he's holy, he takes a big running start and he gets out like 20, 30 feet into the ocean, right? And maybe Gandhi, Gandhi, you know, hikes up his, his robe and he takes a big running start and he gets all the way out past the breakers. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because it is ridiculously short. Ridiculously short, no matter how good you are. That's the point. That's the point God's trying to make with this. Listen, it's, it's the point is that the ascent to heaven uh, is impossible. We actually agree with the critics. We agree with the atheists that for man to alone just find God, much less ascend to him, is not possible. Can't be done. And yet that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that God can't descend to us. And that's what he does. God comes down. What are those knuckleheads doing? <laughs> oh, they're building a tower. Again. Same tower? Yeah, same tower. <laughs> Didn't we knock that down last week? Yeah. They're at it again? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what to do. <laughs> See, we can't ascend to heaven, but God descends to us. That's the whole point. That's what he did, right? If I asked you, what is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world, what would you say? Good answer. I would say it's the trajectory. Every other religion system in the world requires you to do something to ascend. Whether it's some grouping of laws or some performance of rituals or climbing the ontological ladder of infused grace or whatever it is, whatever it is, it's impossible. But God comes down to us. Christianity, God 
comes and descends to mankind and makes himself known to us because we wouldn't even known who he was. And not only makes himself known to us, but completely and fully wins our salvation for us. He becomes a man. He lives and he becomes a perfectly moral. If it was me and Pastor Brian, Gandhi, and Jesus, Jesus, bang, China, no sweat, right? Perfect, holy, righteous life gives us the credit for it, takes our sins to the cross, blank slate. We become in God's sight as holy and righteous as Jesus is. And then God, like in the course of our lives, begins that process of burning off all the impurities and filth that cling to us and all the death that we hold on to. God, please don't take it. Bringing us more and more and more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus. But that's what God does. He comes to us. There's no other way. There is no other way, period. Any other way, you're coming up short. You're coming up short. It's not like, you're, it's not like oh God, God's paying the tab. That's so sweet, as if you could have. Or maybe let us play the tip. No, either God comes to you and saves you, or you're not getting saved. That's it. And you know what the Bible says? This is mind-blowing. He did it for the joy. Not like some dirty job he had to get over with. He did it for the joy of rescuing us. He did it for the joy of liberating us from Satan and from death and from sin and from every ugly and evil thing in the world. He did it for the joy of it, not begrudgingly, Jesus alone fills that gap. Only Jesus can reconnect us with heaven, right? Well, maybe you're thinking to yourself, hold up. In the passage here, he just beats these people down. (laughs) Yes, he does. It's brilliant. Listen, he makes it really hard for everyone to get together and fool themselves into destruction by giving out measured doses of merciful destruction. Measured doses of merciful destruction. We have a prayer that we pray for fools when they get off the reservation. We pray, God, we pray that you would give them the destruction that they need. Why? He is intent on letting everybody know, no matter where you live, that this is not heaven. You're not gonna miss, as much as you make try, as much as we try to fool ourselves, as much as we try to build these towers and climb up, as much as we try to get together and like concoct some half-bait, second-rate misery to live in, God is like, nope, you're not gonna mistake this for heaven. This ain't it. This is not it. And so he mercifully gives out these measured doses of destruction, which is mercy. Mercy. Let me tell you a story. In my former life, uh, towards the end of my declining drug empire, things were starting to go bad. Not super bad yet, but things were starting to go bad. 
And I remember distinctly sitting on the steps of the Days Inn in Mission Valley. I wasn't even Christian yet. And I prayed to God. You know what I prayed? I, I, when I sat there on those steps, even as a non-Christian, I wasn't afraid of the cops. I wasn't afraid of other drug dealers. What I was afraid of was I knew sooner or later God was going to start dropping bombs in my life. He was going to start putting roadblocks that would wreck my plan and wreck my life, bring me to the point of destruction where I had to cry out for mercy to be saved. And he did. <laughs> Man, he did. I hated it. I didn't want it to happen, but that's what he did. He does it for all of us. He does it for his people. Look, if there's anything that we are good at, if there's anything that we are good at, it's holding on to some jacked up plan that sucks compared to what God would have for us. Holding on to that death for dear life. And the good news is, part of the good news is, God's got a plan for that too. Because not only does God beat it out of us, he burns it out of us. God burns it out of us. Listen, a lot of times we do, these, we do our sermons and our tradition. We kind of end on the Jesus has paid for all of your sins, hallelujah. And that's a good and right thing to always have that as the central part of any sermon. You're not saved by anything you do. You are saved by what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And we, why do we do that? We do that to leave this with a, with a breathtaking view of the beauty of Christ, who for the joy of bringing us into his eternal family descended all that distance to come and be murdered by his own creatures so that he could win our salvation for us and that in that we are secure. You can't wreck that. God's called you in. He's called you in. He is holding you. You can't wreck that. However, sometimes I wonder uh, if what we inadvertently leave people with is this kind of sneaking suspicion of like a temporary doom. Like, okay, I get it. Jesus has paid for my sins, but, uh, and, 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 uh, and I know that when I die, I'm going to be in heaven, and that's going to be great, but in the meantime, I've got to live in this life, and I'm a miserable worm and a sinner, and all I can do is sin and wreck my life, and all I have to look forward to is a long series of painful, meaningless suffering until finally Jesus pulls me out, and maybe the best thing I could just do is, you know, I don't know, pray for an early death. I don't know. Uh, I'm just hopeless and powerless against the foolishness of my own mind. Not true. Listen. Now, are you going to be foolish? <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is God going to come down and be like, What's he, what is Rob doing? Is that the same tower? Because, yeah. <laughs> man, you're never going to stop building towers. Listen, <laughs> as we like build this you know, I believe God has given me a vision to create a beautiful reformed church. That's what we're doing. We are building Resfres. But at the same time, I'm building this other thing called Rob's Church. 
You know what I'm saying? I want everybody to be like, ooh, wow. Look at Rob. He's so good at being a church planner. Wow. And God is beating that down, right? Beating it down. Oh, my gosh. Beating it down, right? In mercy, right? Listen, so you're not going to stop being foolish. <laughs> you're not going to stop doing dumb things. God's not going to stop beating it out of you, and burn, but he's also going to be burning it out of you. That's the good news. It's the second most beautiful thing in this passage. It's the second most beautiful thing that God promises us in this life. In this life. Look, what does David say? David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's now. What does Paul say? Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's a rhetorical question, yes, and he who raised Christ from Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's now. He's going to give us this life. He's going to burn off our sin and set us apart. Listen, God is in the process of making you holy. That's a scary word for us. Scary word for reformed people. Holy, what do you mean, Rob? You mean perfect? You mean like sinless? You mean like, I don't know, I'm a miserable worm and all I can do is sin, sin, sin. And I get that, I get that. What does holy mean? Holy means set apart by God, for God, for his purposes for you, which are so much better than the sucky death that you cling to and the plans that you make. Uh, listen, there's a whole, at the same time these guys are out there building a tower, there's a whole nother building project going on. A whole nother building project going on. Noah gets out of the boat, chapter eight, verse 20, and Noah built an altar to the Lord. Abraham, what's funny about this crazy narrative, is that Noah comes off the boat, he knows God, he builds an altar to the Lord, he makes a sacrifice on it, which symbolizes the covering of Jesus' uh, atoning blood on him, but it also it's a symbol saying, I trust you and your plan and your purposes for me. I am marking, I am making this altar to say, I belong to God, and I'm trusting his part and his plan for me more than I trust myself. By the time you get to Abraham, everybody's forgotten it. It's just as bad as before the flood Abraham and his parents are worshiping the moon in a Sumerian city, and God calls Abraham out. What does Abraham do? Abraham goes, God says, leave everything that you have, leave all your people, leave all your wealth, leave all your comfort, leave all your protection, leave every single earthly thing that you lean in for protection and comfort and safety, leave it, and go live amongst a bunch of people who will, will just as soon kill you as anything else, and he does, kind of roundabout, right? And what does he do? Abraham gets there. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord. What's the altar? The altar, right? The altar is, it's a, on the altar, they burn a whole sacrifice. They burn an animal sacrifice. It's a picture of Jesus and his work for us. It's also a symbol that these are God's people. It's a symbol that these people belong to God and they trust what God's plan is. They trust what God's purpose is more 
than their own. They're building altars instead of building towers. They are saying, God, set us apart. Save us from our silly, foolish tower building. Beat it out of us, burn it out of us, and set us apart for your purposes. Now maybe you're saying, oh, come on, Rob. Altars, that's so Old Testament. We don't do that anymore. Jesus, that's true. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that those altars stood for in the Old Testament. Once his blood was shed, once he was sacrificed, there is no more sacrifice for sin because he has purified all those who trust in him with one sacrifice, right? Yet the imagery continues into the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says. He says, present your body. He says, as, uh, he says uh, you know, in response to the mercy of God, which is the first eight chapters of Romans, saying, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. He's completely saved you. He saved you when you were an enemy, and he's locked you into that salvation. You belong to him. That cannot change. He has begun to purify you with his spirit. You are being remade into the image of God. You're being brought out of your death. That is something God is doing for you, and it cannot be stopped. And God says, because of this mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's he saying? That's how we worship God. That's our worship to God. Our worship to God for the salvation that we've already received. Thank you, God, for saving us through Christ. Is that you're supposed to climb up on that altar yourself and throw yourself on it and trust God to burn away everything that causes you to continue to spend all your time and energy building these monuments to self that wreck your life and your family's lives. <sighs> to be set apart from sin by God and for God and for his plan. And in that, and in that alone, that is the place of joy and fulfillment and purpose and happiness. That's it. Anything else is second. Anything else is just half-cocked, miserable, half-baked scheme. Listen, let me end with this. Part of my conversion into Christianity was this providential moment when I walked into Bookstar back before... Amazon is really a thing, I guess. Bookstar, right uh, on Rosecrans Avenue, right? To go to the New Age book section and find some New Age book about, you know, how to build a tower, like Tower Building 101. Or I, was, I was way ahead of that, of Tower Building like 301, maybe. Uh, and, and I saw this book on the shelf in the same, like, section called Utmost for His Highest. By his, and, uh, and I was like, what's that? I open it up to chapter. I open it up. It's a, it's a daily devotional separated by days, and I open it up to February 6th. And this is what I read. 
bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Psalm 118, 27. You must be willing to be placed on the altar and go through the fire. Willing to experience what the altar represents. Burning, purification, separation for only one purpose, the elimination of every desire and affection not grounded in or directed toward God. But you don't eliminate it. God does. You bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar and you see to it, you don't wallow in self-pity when the fire starts. I like almost dropped the book. I was like, oh gosh, man. And then it went on to say, when another crisis arises, when the next crisis arises, you realize things can't touch you the way they used to. But fire lies ahead in your life. Tell God you are ready to be poured out as an offering and God will prove himself to be all you ever dreamed he would be. Man, never forgot that moment. It was pivotal and turning. God used that. Because I was in a spot where I knew I needed some burning and purification. I was wrapped up in things that I thought would control me forever, that I would never be able to get out from under, that were making my life miserable. I cried out to God. I said, God, prove yourself to be all I ever dreamed you would be. And I spent my whole life making up these versions of God that would totally co-sign all my tower building. And that imaginary God that I made up never had the power to come through and be God never had the power to be the God that I needed. Might have been the God I wanted. Man, but when the chips got down, it wasn't the God I needed. Only God was the God I needed. You know, some of you, some of you are mad at God right now. Some of you probably came to church today mad at God uh, because you got your plan all worked out and he's bombing your tower built, <laughs> and you're mad. You're mad. You think God sucks because you know, you know exactly what you need to be happy, and he's wrecking it. Uh, but he's saving. He's saving you. Measured doses of merciful destruction. Climb into that altar, strap yourself in and say, God, show me that you are everything I always hoped that you would be. Probably more of you are kind of confused between stuff I do in the world, stuff I do at church, because we bought into this lie that there's a hard line, there's kind of a hard line between those things. It's like what I gotta do every day, and then I come and try to, you know, what I can do at church, but this part seems to kind of overwhelm everything, and you're like, I don't, I don't uh, the hard separation is alive, right? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Put it all on the altar and say, God, all of this is for you. My career is for you. My marriage is for you. My relationships are for you. Everything I do in the world, let it be 
an act of worship and burn away from me every impure thing that keeps me from being in the center of your will, that keeps me from doing that thing which you have created me to do and be, even if no one else ever sees it, even if you're the only one who ever knows, let us be in that place and see what God does with us. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we are a tower-building people. We live amongst a tower-building people. From birth, we're taught that the way to find happiness and joy is to figure out our own plan and pursue it. Follow our heart. Well, many of us have done that and it didn't work out the way we'd hoped, Lord. And you saved us. You descended to us and pulled us out of the misery that we had created. And Lord, we pray now, as your people, we still build towers. We're still confused about how we are called to be holy, how we are called to be set apart, people set apart by you, for you, for your purposes, which are the best things for us to be a light in the world. And we pray, Lord, we pray this. Pray that you would strap us into the altar. We pray you would help us to not wallow in self-pity as you burn away those things that destroy us. And we pray that you would do something great with us. Show us what that is. And help us to live into it in Jesus' name. Amen.